over the last five weeks, actually six, because I did one week, I doubled up and we looked at uh, lamentation because we have lost the art of lament. So we took two weeks on that. But the last five or six weeks, we have taken time on little known Old Testament books because they are kind of, we focus on the big things like Isaiah and Exodus and Matthew. And some of these things can be not noticed. In the Jewish calendar, every year, and just to remind you, every year at five of the festivals, one of them is a fast, but five occasions through the year, they stop to read in full the five books of the Megaloth. Megaloth just simply means in Hebrew, five scrolls. And each, each of the um, different times, they take a scroll, they read it in its entirety. Now, that's not difficult with something like Ruth. So the, the first is the Passover, where God passed over them, and it's the whole thing of them moving out of Egypt into the land of promise. The Passover, the moment where the blood was put on the lintel, and the angel of death passed over the children, the sons, the first sons of Israel. And they read in that context, Song of Songs. And so we looked at Song of Songs um, and the beauty of that book, not as an allegory, but as a, as a clear and a powerful statement about love, about physical love, about the whole thing of God and his church, the whole thing. The second thing is Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost as we know it. And there they read the book of Ruth. On the ninth of Av, they, uh, they basically mourn the destruction. And, and here's the thing, the first temple was destroyed on that date and so was the second temple. And there's a time for lamentation. And as we looked at that, we noticed that when David grieved over Saul and David's uh, and Jonathan's death, it says in Samuel that he taught Israel how to lament. And so we took a brief pause to learn how to lament, especially as we come out of the um, last 18 months. And then last week, we looked at the Feast of Tabernacles, the book that is read at the Harvest Festival, Ecclesiastes, vapor, everything is vapor, a loud noise of wind nothingness, meaninglessness. And so we dug down into that. And today we're looking at Esther. Now Esther is celebrated at the Feast of Purim. Perhaps what I should do is I should read two passages from Esther. And I'm going to start in the most logical place in Esther. Right at the back. Chapter eight. There's 10 chapters, but it's a short book. Here's the thing. Most of these things, and Esther is the most delightful story. It's like Ruth. It, if, you, if you teased it out, it would make the most remarkable novel. And here it is in this, this little compact thing squeezed into the middle of the Old Testament. And it's read from beginning to end without stop. And it's not difficult to do that. And I want to suggest that today or in this week coming, you pause for a moment and spend just a few minutes, really, literally, it won't take you long, the last chapter is only a couple of verses, to read Esther and get the whole sense of what's going on, because I can't give it all to you this morning.
But chapter 8, verse 15, 16, and 17, it says, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For, for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews. A feast, a holiday, or a good day, it was called in Hebrew. And many among the people of the land became Jews, for the dread or the fear or the awe of the Jews had fallen on them. And then going backwards to chapter 4, I want to read verses 13 to 17. What you see with Mordecai is that right at the end of it, that's, that's the triumphal conclusion, if you like, of the whole story. What you've got here right at the beginning or in the middle is this, the pivot point. In verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Esther was a Jew. And what had happened is that the queen had been dismissed. And we need a bit of context here. So let me just tell you this. You had Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And then when that had gone, the Persians came along and you had Darius the first, powerful ruler, big name in history. Then you had, um, um, who came after him? I did, I, it's just gone right out of my head, I do know. Um, doesn't matter, does it? And then came Xerxes, we know Xerxes. This is Xerxes, this is a story about when Xerxes was king of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire stretched from the borders of India. It included Afghanistan and Pakistan. It included this side of the Himalayas all the way up into what is now uh, sort of the, the stands as Uzbekistan and Uzbekistan, all those places, you know, into Turkey, all the way across North Africa to almost as far as Tunisia, down to Ethiopia. It was a massive empire that included Iran and today's Iraq, uh, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt. It was, it was huge. And here, the center of this empire, this Persian empire, was in a place called Susa. And one of the most remarkable things is that with sort of this fifth century uh, BC world is kind of black and white. We don't have a huge amount of history for it. What we do know is that there was a little Jewish community in Susa, one in Elephantine in Egypt, and then they were spread out across the empire. They had been taken to Babylon. Some of them had gone back, and there was this diaspora, and they were all over the place. This story is about the fact that Haman, who's the prime minister, sees an opportunity to obliterate the Jews. Now, that's kind of fresh in modern history because of the kind of thing that Hitler did um, with the Holocaust. But he was, there was going to be a pogrom literally against the Jews throughout the empire. A decree went out. The king had absolute power. And the queen upset him, so the queen was dismissed. She's lucky to get away with her life, 
apparently. And then you need to read the intricacies of it. But Mordecai, who took in his, I think it's his niece, who uh, is Esther. And Esther's parents had died. She was an orphan. So Mordecai takes Esther and he brings her up as his own daughter. And there is this opportunity because the king's looking for a new queen and the queen and she gets taken in and she is dressed up and she's made out as a Persian beauty. And there's a verse that says clearly that her face and her form, in other words, she had a great body and she looked stunning. And the king really liked her. And she's elevated to queen. Now, as I said, the details you need to have a look at for yourself. But it's this place here that there is this thing that goes out that all the Jews are to be eradicated. And that verse that I read there, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. If you are Jewish, it doesn't matter where you are in the whole system, you will be taken out. And Mordecai says to her, don't think that you are going to be special. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. He says, look, you need to do something about this. But know this, that there's no pressure on you. Hardly. There's no pressure on you. No, I think it's, I think it's true. I think there's, Mordecai is not kind of coercive or controlling over Esther. He loves her. But he's clearly stating to her, he's being honest with her, and he's saying, know this, you're not going to be spared. And there is a point at which you can't remain silent in a time like this. Because you will die. And he says this, and who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Now we know that and it glibly rolls off the tongue. Maybe you've been placed in this position or that position for such a time as this. It has kind of, I don't know, a gravitas about it. <laughs> but he's saying, mark what's going on. And then Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai in verse 16. Go and tell, get all the Jews together, assemble them. Anyone who in Susa is Jewish and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And I and my maidens, her whole entourage that looked after her, her ladies in waiting. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And then I will go to the king which is not according to the law. In other words, she could not go into his presence. The king only summoned. You couldn't approach without losing your life most of the time. And she says, if I die, I die. This is not games. This is real life. This is life and death. This is about big weighty matters. And I think that when we look at the book, I was in two minds looking at this whole thing. Do I talk about the dark side of it at the beginning or the end? I think I'll leave it till the end. Because there is a huge dark side to the story. There is a thread that runs through it. 
Because in a very real sense, the question that's being asked is, can a community of faith exist in a world that is hostile or indifferent? Can a community of faith live in a place where it is being annihilated or a threat to annihilate it in one form or another? I think Esther answers that question, but maybe not in the kind of way that we think in the end. We tend to measure what the church is and who we are as Christians by a standard that we bring in from our culture, whether it be from our business culture or our more general sense of culture. But the church is a unique um, instance. There's no other thing. Colbert, the theologian from the last century, said there is no template for the church. You can't measure it against any other institution or any other sociological or anthropological organization. It is in and of itself unique. And when we have little access to power, you see, the church now in this country and globally has moved from a place over the last 40, 50, 100 years where it was dominant, especially in Western culture, where it was what the church says, where, where the bishops and the leaders of the church had authority. I remember even going back to my early days, I'm getting older, okay? If I went into the bank, we had banks in those days, and there was a bank manager in every branch. And if I went into the bank, there was a huge amount of respect because I was clergy. I carried authority and weight, and there was a sense of um, importance. That has dribbled out of our society. And more often than not, as people who are in ministry or Christians, we are derided and looked at with scorn. We belittled in the media and the, 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 the general understanding of who we are is a caricature. Can we exist in a place like this? Well, not if we just give up and allow the stream to push us all the way back out. What Esther and Mordecai are doing here is essentially saying we are a little bit like salmon. It takes all of your energy. You may die in the process, but to get upstream and spawn, to bring life, you will be constantly swimming against the tide. And so when you see that there was the possibility of the Jewish people being in the whole Persian Empire, which was the only place that they were, being completely obliterated. And this is not insignificant. You understand why the Jews celebrate Purim and why when they read Esther, they have a party. I've never been to one, but apparently 
the festival and the feast of Purim is second only to Passover, which is huge. And at Purim, they, they feast and celebrate and they, they dance and drink. Rabbis have a saying, and this I have on good authority, that although moderation is required throughout the year, at Purim, you are per permitted to drink wine. And here's the quote. Until you don't know the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. <laughs> now, I wonder whether we shouldn't try that next Sunday. <laughs> you know, I, I know exactly what it is. You go and read in some of these accounts of Purim where they read the book out loud to the congregation of, of a Jewish congregation. Whenever Mordecai's name is mentioned, they clap and shout and roar like crazy. And whenever Haman's name is, comes out, they hiss and boo. But they absolutely are exuberant. What is it that they celebrate? They celebrate the sovereignty of God. They celebrate that God is in control, that he cares for and loves and looks after his people, that even if it comes down to a tiny remnant, even if it is only a few people left, they will not be obliterated. I think we haven't got time this morning because I can see the clock running out on me now anyway, but... Um, we haven't got time, we maybe come back to this in some weeks to come, but to look at the, the corporate sense of what it means when we look at salvation or joy, what it is in community. <clears throat> Just quickly, Sousa is in present-day Iran. You've got the Tigris and the Euphrates come, they come out into the Persian Gulf. And then Susa is halfway between the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf, roughly. That was the center of the Persian Empire. It wasn't far from Ur, which is present-day Basra in, in Iraq. And there is the sense of that, that the Jews had been called with Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldees, and had come to a land of promise. They had come through a long process where they had been uh, sort of tent makers and nomads in the new land and then they had gone down into Egypt where over 400 years they became enslaved and then there was that major joy of liberation exodus and then the 40 years as um, wandering in the desert and then coming into that promised land again where the the tribes were sort of loosely knit together and then it became two kingdoms one kingdom kings all that stuff happened Faithful ones, unfaithful ones, and then exile into Babylon and the return from exile. They had, they had been conscious all through this process, right from the beginning when God called Abraham and promised him that they would become like, what's it, um, stars in the sky or sand on the beach? Yeah, sand. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, girl. <clears throat> The form changed, but they were conscious all the way through it that they were there because of his grace. Nothing more, nothing less.
So what happens is, and, 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 and the plot line is, is quite intricate, because it just happens that the queen gets dismissed by the king. It just happens that Mordecai is in um, a position to push Esther forward. It just happens that the king likes her face and form. It just happens there's these circumstantial things that keep happening over and over again. Randall, who's the golfer who said, um, um, the luckier, the, the more I practice, the luckier I get, or the more holes I can't remember. Anyway, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing, is that there, there, there are all these things that happen over and over and over again that people say, oh, that's just chance, that's just circumstances or um, coincidence is the word I was looking for. When you read Esther, look for the coincidences. Look for the ways in which, for example, there is uh, Haman is, is almost entirely in control of the situation until the king begins to read and he, he can't sleep one night. He just happens not to be able to sleep. And he just happens to find a scroll that's talking about what Haman has done. I mean, Mordecai has done. And he just happens to, it's, there's all this stuff. And I said at the beginning, what did I? No, I didn't say this. God is actually not mentioned in the book of Esther. Not once. But it's the subplot of everything. And I thought, you know what? It's just like your day and my day on a normal day. We may get up and we may make um, time for reading and prayer if we are faithful and diligent. And then the day smacks us in the face. And there is this to do and that to do, and there's phones to answer and pressures of work and kids and all sorts of other things. And by the time we switch the light out at night, it takes a fair amount of discipline to have even thought about God, let alone even speak to somebody about it. And I think when we look at our own days, our own lives, it's often a little bit like this, is that your, the exterior of your life and my life may not look too different sometimes to the guy next door who hasn't any consciousness of God being with him. But what Esther is saying to you and I is that not only in these big world events, but in the moment of each day, when you aren't even conscious of it, there is something happening underneath the surface that is purposeful, that is planned, that says to us that God is in control. Even when it doesn't look like it. Now you, you, can, you can go all the way through the Old Testament, New Testament and see it didn't look like God was in control when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, as we saw last two, three weeks ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't look like God is in control. But you see, that point is not the end of the story. The end of the story is still to come. And we live with that kind of understanding and hope as Christians that no matter what darkness there is in us, around us, evil is not the last word. Darkness is not the end of the story. 
there is light and hope and joy that is present in these little fragments that we enjoy moment by moment here and there. But one day, everything will be light. Everything will be joy. Everything will be lifted up and celebratory. It is phenomenal, guys, that we live with that kind of hope. And what Esther does to us is it says, no matter what it looks like, God is holding the whole universe, as he says, Paul says to us in Colossians, he holds the whole universe. He's in control. <coughs> and we must never, ever, ever forget it. That's, that's one thing. The second thing is that Mordecai and Esther are not in and of themselves that spectacular, but they are obedient. We almost give up when we can't be number one. I see it in a lot of kids around who, if they can't come first, they won't come at all. They give up if they can't be the best. And we push in our society all our entertainment. Who is the, who is the master chef? Who is the baker of the week? Who is, who, uh, I don't know what strictly is that. Is that a thing? Um, we, we discard people along the way and we clap at them gently while they disappear into the sunset. But the ones we want are the ones who have prevailed and who've won. We want the successful ones. It's not like that in the church. Every single one who is a follower of Jesus is absolutely vital to the whole community. I, I, I watched while I was sitting working a little bit of um, what's that children in need thing. And you know what struck me was the little inserts that they had of some of the children that have been recipients to the generosity of people. And almost without fail, these young children who have all kinds of difficulties in life are universally buoyant and, and filled with a sense of gratitude for life. The ones who have all their faculties and all the stuff that they can possibly want don't often. The point is this. Every ordinary and extraordinary person is important in God's economy. What is important about it is that we are faithful to do what God calls us to do. Esther says, Mordecai says to Esther through, through the, the go-between, he says, maybe you were brought into the situation for such a time as this. Well, you happen to work where you work. You happen to have the friends that you have. You happen to have the history and the experience the life things that have happened to you for such a time as this. If you don't grab hold of what's coming, and it may be very difficult, it may be very hard to be upright and moral and honest and have integrity in a world that's grabbing for what it can. But to be faithful 
and leave the rest to God. That's the obedience of Mordecai and Esther. That's why the whole thing works. They were servants. Let me just say last two, two things quickly. The one I'll say very quickly. One of the words that you will find through Esther is favor. And so I went and read every single time that that word is in the Old and New Testament. And it starts with Joseph, and it goes to Moses, and it goes to Samuel, and it goes to Ruth. It's quite extensive in Ruth, the book of Ruth. It's quite often used in Esther, and, and, and all the way through. Until you hit Mary, and the angel says, you have found favor in the eyes of God. That's the, that's the dominant way it's expressed. So Joseph, God gives him favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. There's a sense in which there is a theme that runs through and is expressly pointed out here in Esther that the favor of God, God's blessing, his hand, his presence, his power is with us and on us and in us with, by the Spirit of God. And you can grow because it says in Luke, after Jesus' birth and when he's a young man, that he grew in favor and wisdom with God and men. I think we need to make that a prayer for our lives that we say, God, here I am. I know the circumstances that I have. I trust that you are in control. Therefore, I trust that I'm here, whether it's through mistakes I've made, bad decisions, good decisions, opportunities, who knows? Certain things I did not choose. I did not choose to be a white male in South Africa when I was born. What did I do with it? It was important that you, you, you grapple with what you are given and you live honorably and as truthfully as you can. And we say, God, grant us favor. Give us favor in this moment that we live fully and truly now as servants of the Most High, of the living God. And then I've saved the dark but till last. There is always a Haman. Wherever we are, whether it's in a, in a, in a, in a global sense like uh, the pogrom that he had uh, envisaged for the Jewish nation, or whether it's in the bullying of a child at school, there is always someone who is an expression, sorry, an expression, a personification, if you like, of the fact that evil exists. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you'll have trouble. You don't be, have to be a rocket scientist to know that that's what happens. But he says to them, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Oh, really? Doesn't look like it. Doesn't look like it when you have rising nationalism and racism and homophobia and all, all kinds of base things that are now, they've always been there, but are boiling up 
in a way in our societies that is quite scary. Where are we on the spectrum? How are we living in this moment? We need to understand clearly and categorically that evil exists. Not difficult. But this is what we have that others don't, is that it doesn't exist forever. It's not the final word. Darkness and suffering and illness and all those things are not the end of the story. Because Jesus died and he was buried and he was raised to new life. And his father elevated him to a position at his right hand. And sent the spirit so that we can embody the same things that he did with the people that we come into contact on a daily basis, like Esther and Mordecai. So that the Hammonds of this world do not have the final word. Will we live or will we die? Well, here's hoping that we die. Because that's what Jesus called us to. He called us to take up our cross on a daily basis. He taught, taught us that we should be willing to sacrifice ourselves to see the kingdom come. And that's what Esther is a celebration of. And that's why we are able to say with the Jews all around the world, we party and celebrate because actually we know the end of the story. It's finished. And Jesus is raised from the dead.